Hello and welcome to Talking New Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Uretina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. This week, a discussion on non-invasive imaging in diabetic retinopathy and other common retinal diseases led by Dr. Stella Vujasevic. First, though, a note that coming up on the 29th of July, Uretina will have another double debate, chaired by Alistair Laidlaw and Nicole Etter. The first motion is complement inhibition will be an important part of our armamentarium in the management of geographic atrophy. An interesting question that will be debated by Jordi Moniz from Spain and Jaya Krishna Ambati from the United States. After that, the second question is whether biosimilars are an important treatment option for retinal diseases. Again, something that will interest a lot of people. Anish Sharma from India will debate Paolo Lanzetta on the question. Registration will open soon on the Uretina website, so keep an eye out there for more information on this and other Uretina activity. If you'd like to comment on this podcast or request that we cover anything on the show, please do email us podcast at uretina.org. All right, time for our expert discussion on non-invasive imaging, chaired by Dr. Stella Vujasevic from the University of Milan in Italy. And our faculty are Dr. Bianca Gerendas. She's the Managing Director of the Vienna Reading Centre at Medical University of Vienna. And Dr. Armani Fauzi from Northwestern University of Chicago. Stella, it is great to have you for your debut appearance on Talking Uretina. Over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, it's our great pleasure to be tonight uh, with the all uh, EU Retina community. And uh, we hope to have some interesting discussion with Bianca and Amani. Uh, so we will talk about the non-invasive imaging in the most common retinal diseases. And as we know, all the advances that we had recently, especially in the OCT and OCTA, for uh, diabetic retinopathy and also AMD. I think that uh, OCT uh, is uh, the tool that we definitely all use in everyday uh, clinical practice, not only in clinical research. And uh, we have all uh, learned, I think, to evaluate a lot of parameters on OCT. For example, if we think of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema, we are not just evaluating the retinal thickness in the patients that undergo uh, intravitreal injections or other treatments, but we now have learned to evaluate also other parameters. So we look uh, deeper into the structure of the retina. For example, we evaluate all specific patterns of DME, such as the presence, for example, of the subfoveal neuroretinal detachment, or we look for some specific signs of the inflammation, such as, for example, the hyperreflective retinal spots or foci, or we look for the integrity of the inner retinal layers, specifically on the presence of the drills, so the disorganization of the inner retinal layers, and also the integrity of the outer retinal layers. But not only the OCT is one of the tools that we use in the everyday clinical practice, also the OCTA has become a valuable tool for all of us. And here we have Dr. Amani Fazi, that she is definitely the expert in the use of the OCTA in diabetic retinopathy and has published a lot of papers, very valuable papers. So we are very glad to have her tonight with us. So Amani, please, 
Could you tell us how do you use the OCTA in diabetic patients and what are the most useful parameters to evaluate both in the clinical practice and in the research? Thank you so much, Stella. It's really fun to be here and uh, thank you for inviting me and sharing our experience with the retina listeners. Indeed, you know, OCTA has given us a new perspective on the retina. We can look at the different layers but it's only a limited portion of the retina that we're looking at. And we're all sort of excited about the peripheral retina and what we could learn from that, uh, trained by the fluorescein angiography and the wide-angle viewing. So there's a little bit of a um, disconnect between what we can see on OCTA and what the entire retina shows us. So we're thinking about ways to use the OCTA as a sort of a surrogate marker for these peripheral lesions, but it's still not there. So clinically, I think there's still some things to be desired from OCTA. You know, the, the software needs a lot of improvement to remove projection artifacts. Different machines use different segmentation algorithms, different projection artifact removals. It's, it's really hard to integrate data across machines. But in research, we could deal with all these problems and clean up the data and really look at different parameters in more detail. And we're starting to see that the deep capillaries are giving us a lot of information about not only ischemia and severity of retinopathy, but also in, a, in our limited data set telling us about patients who are more likely to progress. There's something about the deep capillaries that's really interesting, and we're starting to unravel that in our research. Okay, and uh, Amani, do you find it most useful in the early stages of diabetic retinopathy or in more advanced stages of diabetic retinopathy, especially DME? Yeah, I think that's another great question. So when we use it in DME, we always worry about artifacts. So it's hard to know if, if these deficits in, in the capillaries are real or if they're shadow artifacts and, or, or the cysts pushing the vessels aside. So it makes us a little hesitant to try to make decisions based on OCT angiography. But, um, you know, I find it more, more, most useful in patients who are in sort of in the middle of their diabetes course where I'm trying to decide are these patients that I should follow more closely so that they have a lot of non-perfusion. I feel like these patients are at high risk for problems of so maybe bringing them in more closely, especially when... Peripheral imaging is not available or, or when I'm trying to sort of prioritize some patients for close follow-up, especially in the pandemic. Okay, thank you. And when you look at the OCTA exam, would you say that the deep capillary plexus is more important than the superficial one? Or you always look at the both or the three plexuses actually we have? So what would you say to our listeners? Yeah, that's another great question. So if I had all the tools I have in the research to remove artifacts and clean up the data, I would say look at the deep. But as you know, and as our listeners know, the deep capillaries are most susceptible to artifacts. So if you look at the raw data from the machine, he may be influenced uh, unduly by these artifacts. So in that situation, I think it may be even easier to look at the entire retina so that you avoid all these artifacts and just look at a full retinal thickness, non-perfusion, perhaps. And when you, for example, compare the OCTA to fluorescein angiography for the evaluation, let's say, of the macula, what would you say that are the most striking or more important differences between these two uh, techniques? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So for if if I'm trying to do laser on a patient and I want to see all the microaneurysms, I probably get an FA because OCTA may miss some of these aneurysms if the flow is very turbulent or or not existent. But if I'm trying to look for real non-perfusion that is unperturbed by leakage, then I want to look at the OCTA. So they offer sort of complementary information to us. So unfortunately, we still need them both. Them both, yeah, I agree. I agree completely. And what about the macular ischemia? Uh, do you find the OCTA really very useful for the evaluation of macular ischemia? And how would you define it of OCTA? Yeah, that's that's a great question. That's an area we're all trying to get answers, right? Um, you know, last year uh, with Shuba and uh, and Jamie, we wrote this uh, beautiful sort of review on this topic, and and I think we're learning more and more that this is the next frontier in diabetic retinopathy. So we can treat edema, we can treat it with anti-VEGF, but now we're left with this residual ischemia, and I think that's the new target. Uh, that's our new frontier in diabetic disease that we we need to figure out how to treat this ischemia. So the first thing, of course, we have to define it. And and that's where we all have to put our heads together and have a sort of a way to look at what is the threshold for ischemia and, you know, what is a good target treatment to reverse it. So, yeah, that's a, a work in progress. Definitely. That's something like a hot topic now, no? On the use of the OCTA. Yeah, definitely in diabetic retinopathy. And for example, when you look at the FAZ on OCTA, how do you look at it? What do you look for? Can you please explain us a little bit more? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of people try to divide the FAZ into superficial and deep, and we find that that sometimes introduces real artifacts. Because, you know, anatomically, the FAZ is where all the layers merge into one. So when you try to divide it into two layers, you're basically artificially creating this segmentation that doesn't exist. So for the most accurate, I think it's it's best to look at the full thickness when you're defining the FAZ area. And I think one of the challenges of the FAZ is there's so much variability within races, within subjects, within age, and so it's hard to define a threshold for non-perfusion in the FAZ. So that's another area where we need to come up with either race-specific, gender-specific, you know, age-specific. We need to come up with new parameters for the FAZ. And we really need to pay attention for axial length, magnification artifacts. There's a lot of work to be done. But what I would say is if you see that instead of a regular circle, the FAZ looks geometrically irregular, you're probably dealing with an enlarged FAZ at this point. Okay, yeah, this is really a very important point. I agree with you and not so easy to evaluate and to understand. You agree on that. And what is the correlation or the association between the, let's say, macular ischemia that we can see on OCTA and, for example, the presence of drill that we see on the OCT? How do you think it's correlated? I mean, we, we looked at this question. My, my original hypothesis was that drill was ischemia in the superficial capillaries. And that, you know, if we took a look at these eyes, we'd find just a loss of the superficial capillaries. But we found that it's more complicated, that most of the cases of drill that we had had multi-layer ischemia. So drill is sort of a biomarker for a, a very ischemic phobia or very ischemic macula at multiple levels, not just one layer. So that's that's probably why it correlates with just severe outcomes and vision outcomes. 
Oh, this is really a very important point. And I think we still do not understand a lot of things no, about the drills. Do you think that there is uh, any correlation between the, let's say, uh, drill or uh, any alterations in the photoreceptor layers in the fovea? When, when you said now it is ischemia that involves more layers in the retina. Yeah, that's 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 really you ask really hard questions though. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> They're very difficult to answer. We need to do a lot more research on this. <laughs> but um, you know, we we've been thinking about this. You know, sometimes you see photoreceptor loss, and then you have a hard time figuring out is this a patient that had a lot of edema and then it resolved and left photoreceptor damage. Or is it true ischemia that, um, you know, in the deep capillaries that reflected onto the photoreceptors? And I really haven't found a way to prove which it is because, you know, we only see a pa the patients in a point in time. We don't have that type of longitudinal data to see if ischemia starts first or photoreceptor death comes first. It's, it's a really difficult question to answer. I know, I know. So no more difficult questions on ischemia. <laughs> now I'm going with another difficult <laughs> question. Amani, sorry. You will no not worries. be my friend anymore, I know. But <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is a lot of fun. You're making me think of new projects, you know. <laughs> okay, that's good. Then that's good. That's good. <laughs> and just one question. Would you, what would you say to all our friends and colleagues from the Uretina? So... Is OCTA enough to follow and to evaluate the patients with DME, or do you need we need also something else? So, what would you say about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the beauty of OCTA is give you it gives you the structure, so you can look at the thickness at the same time as you look at the vascular integrity and the ischemia. So, I think most of the time you don't need any other tool unless you're worried about peripheral ischemia and proliferative diabetic retinopathy. But if you're sure there isn't peripheral changes and you're just dealing with macular edema, I think uh, OCTA is beautiful because it gives you that nice, is this patient ischemic or are they just edematous type answer. But you, uh, I presume you uh, do also the OCT when you do the OCTA, no? And you evaluate them both or, or not? Yeah, I mean, all you need in the beginning is just um, a metric of how thick the retina is. And I think if you have an OCT that does OCTA or the other way around, you get both in the same machine. So that sort of solves these two problems. But if you rely on one machine to measure the thickness, another machine, that's also, you know, that happens too, because, you know, the different practices have different tools. Thank you so much, Amani. This was really very inspiring also for me. <laughs> we still have a lot of questions, definitely, that we need to answer. But now that you mentioned also the OCT and all the different machines that we have and we use in clinical practice, we have also today another expert with us, and this is Dr. Bianca Gerendas from the uh, Vienna University and Reading Center, and she's one of the best experts also in the evaluation, uh, automatic evaluation of OCT images and not only OCT. So Bianca, could you please uh, tell us what do you think about the importance of the automatic uh, evaluations of the images of the fundus in general, both in DR and also AMD? 
Yes, Stella, thank you very much for the invitation to be here today. And I also must say that the discussion that you just had with Amani is very inspiring for me as well. And I can also think about some new projects. So thanks for that. To your question, I have to say that you just have to look at the, the congresses, look at Arvo, look at Euretina, look at all our meetings and look at how many sessions we have, including AI and automatic image evaluations. From this, you can already see that this gets more and more important. And from our perspective, we have actually automatically analyzed OCT scans since many years here in Vienna. We have started this when there was no session uh, at any of the Congresses. I think it was in 2012. And by now, we are all flooded with these projects. So um, what we have here is validated tools for the segmentation of fluid in OCTs. And um, we have applied these uh, validated uh, algorithms on many, many data sets for um, clinical studies and also for real life data. And we're currently, I mean, we are always developing new algorithms for photoreceptor segmentations. We have already an algorithm for PD and Drusen segmentation. And I think especially now that al algorithms come to use in reality, the value of these um, algorithms is even more present. They will support us as ophthalmologists in the future, I think, and during our daily clinical routine. And they will also part of our clinical decisions. And I'm convinced that this is the future for us here. Yeah, definitely. They pro probably they will now assist us and help us in the management of, uh, of, for example, DME or AMD patients. I agree completely. And could you please tell us, uh, Bianca, for example, if you think of the patients with DME or uh, also neovascular AMD, what are the parameters that you evaluate uh, when you say the fluids in the retina or uh, underneath the retina? Can you explain us a little bit more? Yeah. So, I mean, what we routinely evaluate is, let's say, just fluid. And that's intraretinal and subretinal fluid. And we usually evaluate it um, in the central millimeter, of course, as the most important area. But we also look at the three and six millimeter areas um, in an OCT scan because uh, we believe there is also value and importance to see um, the, the total fluid of a patient and not just the center. And we have looked at this in, in many diseases and still find the volume of fluid to be the most important parameter. But we can, of course, also look at the area that is covered by looking in an all-fast way on, on the image and decide where we see intraretinal, where do we see subretinal fluid, where do they overlap. And then when it comes to AMD, we can also overlap with PDs, we can overlap with Drusen. And by looking on the OFAS, we can also, for example, look at photoreceptor loss areas and overlap this with fluid. So there's many different things um, that we will do in the future, but currently we apply intra and subretinal fluid segmentation in DME patients. Okay. And why do you think when you said we evaluate the volume of the fluid and of the retina, why is it more important, for example, than we are usually used to evaluate retinal thickness? Can you explain us a little bit this difference? Yeah, here I would like to take an example from a very recent work that we have done in neovascular AMD patients. So um, what we have done here is we have analyzed data from over a thousand patients uh, that are from our department that we have recruited over 10 years. So a very long time period where we have 
had different medications, different treatment regimens. So all that ophthalmology has at the moment. And we have only included patients where we had data over five years. So we have long-term treatment in these patients. And here we have analyzed intra and subretinal fluid automatically, but we have also segmented central retinal thickness. And from a descriptive way, we could see that there was a consistent pattern with the fluid. We could see that uh, the, the fluid response is there in the loading phase. And then um, we have data over each year, year one to five, and then we see that fluid is increasing again, although these patients were under therapy. So this is what we usually see in real world data where treatment is very good in the beginning. And then once treatment gets longer and longer and maybe patients don't show up or there's just no treatment for them, then they have fluid or show fluid again. So when we had all these data together, um, we looked at which of these parameters would mirror visual acuity over time best. And here you, we could clearly see that just intraretinal um, fluid is important, just intraretinal fluid actually in the center, whereas central uh, millimeter retinal thickness and also subretinal thickness, uh, subretinal fluid volume do not matter for visual acuity in, in these patients. So this is just one example. There's other examples of DME patients, of RVO patients, where we can see that the correlation with central retinal thickness is maybe not as low as in AMD. It's low, it's a little bit, but still it is not high enough to really say there is a correlation. Mm -hmm. So it's probably, we all know, you know, from the data, from the DRCR net and everything that the retinal thickness in DME is just moderately correlated, not to visual acuity in these patients. So definitely there are also some other parameters on OCT, not just the fluid, maybe, the, as we said before, as also Amani mentioned, the integrity, you know, uh, this presence of ischemia, the integrity of the inner or outer retinal layers, the ischemia and also the duration of the disease no we i think we all it's very difficult it's very different if you have an acute edema or you have a chronic edema then the thick, let's say the pure thickness or uh, volume is something that can explain only one part of the uh, functional response of the patient Okay, and um, Bianca, uh, all your group from Vienna and also other collaborators, you evaluated um, uh, in a postdoc analysis the data from the protocol T also, no, on the presence of the fluid uh, in DME. And can you please just tell us uh, what did you notice the difference in the response of the fluid, for example, in DME patients when compared to other diseases? such as uh, AMD or uh, retinal vein occlusion? Yeah, when I was just referring to AMD, I said that uh, even in the real world data, we could see that uh, the correlation is best with intraretinal fluid. And um, in DME, we found something else. We found actually that the presence of subretinal fluid was correlated uh, with worse um, visual acuity than if there was absence of subretinal fluid um, in baseline of the study. So we're talking about study data now, which is, of course, different than real-world data. And um, we could also see that there was a greater gain in visual acuity um, for every four weeks, so for every treatment period, 
for the patients that had um, SRF at baseline. And here, of course, we thought that this may just be because of the um, baseline visual acuity. So we had to correct for that. And still the gain was greater in these patients. So in DME, SRF seems to play a more important role than in, at least in the correlation to, to visual acuity um, than in AMD. And when we also look at uh, the differences in, in location of fluid, we have also looked at that for DME, AMD, and RVO. We can actually see that um, intraretinal fluid is pretty similar in all diseases, but um, the subretinal fluid was actually different. We could see that subretinal fluid is, of course, we know because there's PEDs, for example, in AMD, so it's, it's located more um, on the side and not in the center of the scan. But we think that this may also be of importance um, when correlating this to vision, because of course, the most important vision is located in the center, but the subretinal fluid in AMD is not located in the center. So this is maybe um, the cause why this could not be correlated to vision at all. Okay, thank you. And, and one question for, for both of you, when you are in clinical practice now, when you were talking about the fluid underneath the RP detachment, underneath the PD, do you behave in the same way if you have the PD, for example, in a vascular AMD uh, during your anti-VEGF treatment? Do you behave in the same way as you have the subretinal or intraretinal fluid, or you have a different strategy in treating these patients? So, you know, I think we've learned that uh, type 1 CNVs living underneath the RPE are not really bad guys. If we can get them to a quiet stage, they may actually be good guys. They may be supplying oxygen and perfusion. So I think I'm, I'm more likely to let PDs, I mean, most of the time I don't. If a patient presents with a PD and, and no other fluid in any other layer, I would just watch them because this may be a subclinical CNV that's actually of good prognostic in the, you know sign but if um but if they have any other fluid I, i'm more likely to treat and of course we know that interretinal fluid some somehow has a poor prognostic sign so we have to sort of weigh all the options and, and look at where the fluid is and be as aggressive as we can with subretinal but maybe not with intra or sub rp fluid so for me, I think the most important part would be if the PD is changing somehow. So if I see that the PD is growing or that it's uh, responsive to therapy before, then I would treat it if there's fluctuation. But if it's stable and has never changed and always remains the same shape, or at least for like the, the last two injections, then I would not treat it anymore. Okay, no, no, I agree with both of you. This is really very, very interesting. So now if we want, let's say, to sum up all of this, our conversation that we had and we saw how it is important, now OCT, now the automatic evaluation that it is becoming, no, I, I don't want to say it will be the future, but I, I would say it's already a present no, uh, situation and will be even more and more in the future. And also the OCTA, and we heard a lot in diabetic retinopathy. So how you, for example, how do you envision our clinical practice in the medical retina, in the retinal clinic, for, let's say, these, the most common retinal diseases with all these imaging modalities that we have? What do you think will be the major contribution or what will change in our clinical practice? So what are your thoughts for both of you? 
Yeah, so now I, I will start to, to be fair. <laughs> um, so for me, it's clear. I would say I envision that uh, all these algorithms that we have today will be available in the OCT devices or maybe even in platforms where scans are uploaded and then analyzed. Um, this could be also the case. I, I see it more in the devices themselves. Maybe they use platforms to to handle the images. I don't know, because not everything that needs AI performance can be done directly on the devices, I guess. So there need to be new solutions. But I see it definitely on the desk of the ophthalmologist and not anywhere else. But they will have it in front of them to be used, ready for the clinic. Okay, thank you. And you, Amani? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's so much information that we need help. And I think AI <laughs> is the way. I, I think we, we all are running out of time to look at all these different machines and go from one room to the other. So I'm excited about all the all the potential for AI to sort of distill this information down to one or two images for us to look at and interpret. And I want I want the clinicians to always be the person that makes the decision with the patient. So I don't believe in any AI that makes decisions. I think we ultimately have to interact with the technology and take the information. You know, the AI can distill the information for us, but we have to be ultimately be sharing the decision with the patient. Yeah, I, to I totally agree. And that's why I think the term decision support systems is so important, because that's exactly what we need. We don't need systems that decide for us. Definitely. The system will not replace us. It will just assist us with all the, these, you know, as we said, imaging modalities, new data, a lot of data to calculate, let's say, all the data and uh, to have very easily, you know, for example, the changes in the fluid, for example, volume or the changes in whatever parameters we're looking at. But then we in front of the patient with all these data will be able to decide, I think, better you know, how to treat them and what's the best treatment, especially as we are going to have many more treatments now. You know, before we had maybe just one treatment and now with many more treatments, it should help us to you know, deliver, let's say, the best, we hope at least, the best treatment from the beginning you know, for our patients. That's great. I think uh, the future is bright and I hope to have this discussion again in a year with, with us and have these tools at our hands to try them. Yeah, we should have it every year and see how it develops. <laughs> I agree completely, definitely, definitely. So thank you so much. This was really fantastic and inspiring and I really enjoyed it very much. So have a nice evening and let's say hello to all our friends from the EU Retina. Thanks thank you so very much, Stella. Stella. Thank you. Well, Stella, thank you so much for sharing such a fantastic discussion and to our faculty too. It was it really flowed and lots of interesting information there that I hope our listeners will enjoy. It's always great to have such brilliant podcast guests on this program. Although it did seem to me that at the end you were all trying to convince yourselves that AI would not one day replace you. And I'm not sure in 40 years, who knows? But I think for the moment you're safe. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Um, thank you once again uh, to our brilliant faculty. That's it for this episode. Can you believe the Uretina Congress is only two months away? You can find out more and register at uretina.org. Thank you for listening. I've been Jonathan McRae. We'll see you next time on Talking Uretina.